In this episode of The World Isn't Flat, I had a very interesting conversation with LSE professor John Paul Fegger, in which we talked about his new paper, which he co-authored with Dr. Mehra Shami, uh, which develops a new concept called instrumental incoherence. The concept helps us better understand why leaders would undertake potentially costly institutional reforms. So listen up and tell us what you think in the comment section below. Um, there's a lot of talk about institutional reforms <coughs> in international development. There are, especially since the 80s, after Douglas North's work mm. about institutions, um, uh, uh, there are billions of dollars spent in sort of thinking about and also trying to do institutional reforms in developing countries. Uh, there's perhaps very little on how reforms happen uh, mm. and the process of why would a political leader or pol people who have political power would undertake such reforms. And particularly because reforms are costly, and I don't mean just financial cost, but mm. also they're costly because you don't know what you're doing, and the incentive structure could change, mm. and it could end up doing something very different you expect it to. Now, I might be giving too much credit to the political leaders. They might not think about all of this stuff. That might be the reason. But in this new paper, which you wrote with Mavish Sami, who's a political economist at, mm. uh, here at the LSE's Department for International Development, uh, you bring this new concept or a theory of instrumental incoherence, which you think, and I would agree with you, might be an explanation of some of these reforms being undertaken. Can you start by just telling us what it means, uh, very intuitively, very simply, uh, so we can understand what, what the power, and then we can sort of uh, hash it out a bit more later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you, you really touched on it just then in your introduction. The idea of instrumental incoherence is that we've got two things going on with respect to institutional reform. One is that there's a lot of academic excitement about it, about analyzing it, about figuring out why it happens, or once it has happened, trying to work out what the effects will be. And on the other side, in the real world, there is apparently an enormous amount of enthusiasm and enormous amount of real institutional reforming going on. And what Mavish and I realize is the two are strangely disconnected. Um, in the world, we tend to treat them as if they, one was a product of the other and, and they're sort of umbilically linked, but they're not. Um, so the idea of instrumental incoherence is a way to, to get in the middle and explain the, why there isn't a linkage, because the linkage is not random. It, it, it actually varies in interesting systematic ways and it allows you to say something about why the reforms happen and then also about what sorts of effects reforms might have. So to, to, to give you the explanation in brief, instrumental incoherence is analyzing institutional reforms as an instrument that are not meant to achieve the goals that are proclaimed or that one would logically imagine are in meant hindsight. Yeah, um, when some sort of specific reform is implemented. Rather, it's an instrument that's meant to achieve some other goal, which is probably disconnected and very different in dimension, time, and space. What do you call a side effect? A side effect, exactly. So if I can give you a, 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 very, a very stupid analogy, if you and I are trying to decide what to have for dinner, let's say we're going to go out to a restaurant and it's which restaurant should we go, and I want pizza and you want Chinese stir-fry, and in order that's a very accurate description of what I would do. If <laughs> I would prefer a Chinese food over a pizza. And so what do I do to, to achieve my goal of, of convincing you to go for pizza? I pick up a hammer. <laughs> now, a hammer is not functional to pizza, right? It's not yeah. functional to my, my needs or my, my goal. 
what am I doing? Well, I'm trying to scare you. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to suggest I'm going to hit you if you don't if you insist on the Chinese stir fry. That, that, that's a that's a rather brutish example. Um, a much better example <laughs> in this country right now um, is Brexit. Yes. So why the did referendum we have the referendum? Yeah. Why did we have the referendum? David Cameron wanted something like a hundred Tory MPs who kept banging on about yeah. the EU to shut up and let him govern. It's called the European. Research group, I think. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the very, very interesting name for a, <laughs> for a group who doesn't People want who to hate be Europe. Europe. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it was a simple ploy to have a referendum on the fate of the UK and the EU, and really on the fate of the nation in in a number of ever more complex and, and powerful ways, which we can talk about if yeah. you like. Um, but but it wasn't a tool designed to decide the fate of the UK and the EU or the larger economic and political fate of the UK. It was a simple instrument meant to get 100 MPs to shut up to, because the, the referendum would happen after the next election. And so mm-hmm. in this electoral period, he, camp- or, or he campaigned to try to win the prime ministership with the promise of a referendum that would not happen in that period, it would happen in the next period. Yeah. So he wanted to be able to run a campaign without these people making trouble for him and then he wanted to be able to govern and it turned out to be really important for governing because he was in coalition with the Lib Dems so he really didn't need Brexit trouble no mm-hmm. and he achieved that short-term goal at the cost of what of a bre- of a referendum which he then lost so I mean it was a disastrous miscalculation where he didn't think about or care about what happened if the UK actually came out of the EU he just wanted these people to be quiet just to remind you David Cameron is a very avid listener of this podcast, so he's actually, <laughs> he's, he might be okay. slightly offended, but... Well, I'm very happy to take it up with him <laughs> But this, this is really interesting. So, uh, one thing which comes to my mind is that it explains, it doesn't explain gradual institutional change, perhaps, that well, the concept. That's right. That's so, right. It, it explains this sort of uh, uh, structural changes made by politicians, and the presumption is that they're not able to, that they have some sort of a short-term political goal they want to achieve, yeah. and they end up changing something which is much more fundamentally institutional in nature without either comprehending that or caring about it. Uh, is that... that that's correct, that's correct. So there, there are lots of ways in which institutions change gradually. For example, I mean, one very clear example in the common law tradition is that um, precedents change over yeah. time through new court cases, and so a given law or a given norm just sort of organically morphs into something else over decades or, or even centuries. That's not what we're talking about. That's very interesting and important. Yeah. I'm not saying I just wanted to differentiate but it's between, not. Yeah. You're quite right. You're quite right. So what we're talking about is when a politician decides to make an institutional change. And as you alluded to at the beginning, institutional changes are they really should be big decisions because they're very powerful. Institutions, mm-hmm. as Douglas North famously pointed out, are rules the rules of the game. Of the game. Yeah. So it's the way in which we structure governance, it's the rules according to which we run the economy. We even run our families, right? So yes. the family is a kind of an institution that is governed by laws and norms. So changing any one of, uh, any one of these institutions or some as- aspect of institutionality is a big decision that's going to have effects that, that run into the long run, into the long term, and thence are, are difficult to predict. And it probably, because of the rules of the game, it's going to have multidimensional effects. Yeah. If you change the voting system in a country, you, you change the judicial system, you go from common law to, to 
to European uh, civil law or vice versa, and countries actually do this. Yeah. You know? It has effects not just on politics and on the law, but on the economy and on society. It's a really broad, multidimensional effects. Um, why would any politician do this when their, their incentives <laughs> are famously short-term? What, what they want to do is win the next election, or if, if they're an unelected autocrat, they want to stay in power. So they want to win the next transaction, as it were. They don't want to be on the losing side of an important transaction. Um, why you would turn to institutional reform that has unforeseeable consequences in multidimensional space is, is a really strange sort of conundrum. Mm. And nobody has really taken this on frontly, I think, as far as my vision I can tell. I tried to find it, I couldn't find it either. Okay, good, good, so, good. That, that makes me feel more confident. Uh, I told you about this, and I thought that the power of the concept, it feels so, that someone might have talked about this before, yeah. and this sort of nature, because it feels like that it's something which is so fundamentally important to how we look at the world around us. Uh, but I tried to look for it, and I couldn't find something which was ta tackling it from this perspective. So part of what we're doing in this paper is we're, we're taking an idea that I think everyone has in the backs of their minds. Uh, it's a very simple idea that politicians lie, or politicians are disingenuous, if I put it slightly less rudely. Or they, they, don't, they don't mean entirely what they say, they, they mean some little bit, of, or they say some little bit of what they mean or want, but you know, really there are much bigger agendas going on. Um, so politicians are, are not straightforward, let's say. Everybody understands that, and it's it, you know it's it's not worth writing a paper to say that mm -hmm. because we all we all know that to be the case, and it, it's the case for you know for reasonable reasons, as it were. Um, we're we're taking that out of the background of our thinking and putting it front and center, and saying it's not just that politicians say one thing and they mean something else, and that the connection is random, right? They're just two different things. Mm -hmm. The two things are actually connected in this really strong way via the concept of institutional incoherence. And if you understand what it is that they really want, you can map that onto what they do, or vice versa. If you look at what they do in detail, at how they did it, you can back out of it what their incentive must have been. Mm. Because if, if two countries are getting onto the, 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 the main work of the paper, two countries that apparently do something similar, something that, that, that looks similar, like decentralized, actually implemented in fundamentally different ways with very different designs. So Pakistan and Bolivia, yeah. uh, respectively decentralized uh, uh, power mm -hmm. control to subnational governments, uh, and this is this is the example you use with Mavish in this paper to try to, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, to illustrate the usefulness or the utility of the concept in yeah. explaining uh, an institutional change, which is quite important of an institutional change because it's decentralization is a very fundamentally changes the incentives of politicians and all, the, all of this other stuff. Absolutely. So, yeah, so let's go to Pakistan and Bolivia. Uh, not physically, but let's go and try to tell us a bit about the two experiences. And sure. then we can go and how the institution, the, the concept explains uh, how there were different uh, ways to decentralize. Sure, sure. So the first reaction I get when we present this paper is, Pakistan versus Bolivia, are you crazy? These countries are not comparable. You know, compare Bolivia to some Latin country, compare Pakistan to, you know, God forbid, India, but not Bolivia. <laughs> so, so, oh, so first sorry, thing, what was it? Uh, that all happy families are alike in all, yeah. all developed countries are alike in all developing countries are, are different. Developing uh, are miserable in their own way. In their own way, yes, yes, that's right. That's right. So, so a, a couple of, so yes, they're two very different countries. Any two countries are, are different in important ways. Mm -hmm. 
Pakistan and Bolivia have a number of similarities that, that actually make them a, a very interesting comparison. So they're roughly the same geographic size, right? Pakistan is about 700,000 square kilometers, Bolivia is, is slightly over a million. More importantly, they're, they're very diverse countries, they're geographically very diverse. Both have mountains, both have lowlands, both have very fertile land, both have deserts. So, um, they're, they're demographically very diverse, both have lots of different languages and lots of different ethnic groups with different religious beliefs that have different historiographies. Both are unstable democracies, no? Both have had coups. Bolivia's had three big coups in the second half of the 20th century. Pakistan, no, oh. Bolivia had four, Pakistan had three, sorry. Oh, damn it, I was very happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can argue we had four coups too, but that's a very long story. But <laughs> we, will, we can win this game. Uh, Shah, I have no doubt we can. <laughs> but yeah, please continue. Um, yeah. And both countries decentralized almost at the same time in the yeah. 1990s. Um, and they, they decentralized in a way that was unexpected, um, that took both countries' political leaderships and, and uh, elites by surprise. Um, and both did it very quickly. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, and they're both middle-income countries with, uh, with, that are subject to sort of similar... Um, natural resource shock. So we thought, okay, there's an interesting comparison here. So no, it's not a perfect comparison, but no comparison is perfect. There is something here vis-a-vis -vis decentralization in a diverse environment that is worth studying. And what we find is that even though both countries decentralized and they really did things, so they really did devolve resources and power, and they both decentralized down to the local level, both countries jumped over the regional level and went straight down to the local level. Um, beyond that, it's all different. They, mm -hmm. they, they did it in different ways. They, they drew up the law using different processes and different groups of people. Um, in Pakistan, it was really military-led and, and people who were, who, who were confidants of Musharraf and his military um, uh, colleagues, collaborators, um, versus in Bolivia, where it was behind closed doors, but it was a political coalition that included, explicitly included opposition parties and representation from all the major political parties to try to come up with a, a law that was technocratically sound before announcing it and then opening it to debate. So the Bolivian president who did this was a democratically elected president? Yes, exactly. And the Pakistani one was not? Was not. Was not. And yeah. uh, was there involvement in either of the case of multilateral or exogenous partner or international partners in it? No, there wasn't. The, so one of the, the the World Bank knew because I remember this structure adjustment happening around similarish lines. So what, the, there's a very very broad belief in the world that Bolivia decentralized because the World Bank told them to, and this is just wrong. And I want to point out that this is absolutely wrong. And I know, terminantemente, as we say in Spanish, without the slightest shred of doubt that it's wrong, because I worked for the World Bank in Bolivia at the time. Oh, okay. And if yeah. there was someone there whose duty it was to force them to decentralize against their will, it would have been me, because okay. this was my portfolio. Oh. I worked on health, education, early childhood development, the environment, and transportation, so I had the kind of regionalist portfolio, as it were. Rather very broad and, portfolio. And, and, when, <laughs> and when the Bolivians announced decentralization, they called it the law of popular participation. Um, and not only did we not know that it was coming, not only had we not forced them to, to do this thing, when it was announced, we didn't understand what it was, and so I had people from Washington calling me up in La Paz, Bolivia, saying, what is this law of popular participation? We don't understand what it is. And it took me, popular the guy on the ground... Popular participation and World Bank? How will they not... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, World Bank. <laughs> 
it, it took me a couple of weeks to figure out what it was because you know behind the the the, the big proclamations mm -hmm. there was a law and I had to read I had to get the law and then I had to read it and then there were meetings and it became clear that what this was was a deep decentralization and as it turned out in, in the Bolivian case happily for them an authentic decentralization where they not only announced a reform that was internationally you know seen as as being something that the, 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 the world uh, smiled on, but they really did it. They really meant it, and then they really did it. Um, in Pakistan, it, it was quite different. Um, the, so I, I'm going to tell you this story and, and uh, ask your forbearance, because you're Pakistani and I'm not. So Musharraf is the accidental dictator, no? Uh, I think it was Nawaz Sharif who, yes. who was um, the, prime the prime minister at the time. And he and Musharraf didn't get along for reasons that you know better than I and, I and I won't go into. And so Sharif decided that he was going to fire Professor Musharraf as the, the head of the military, as the, the equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the US, the, the head of, of the army and then so of the entire Pakistani military. Um, and Musharraf was on an airplane at the time and found out about this via air traffic control and stormed into the cockpit and ordered the plane to turn around and go back to Islamabad and ordered the, the army to open up the airport because Sharif tried to close the airport to keep him from landing and it actually became a dangerous situation where the plane yeah. was running out of fuel. And he landed with seven minutes of fuel left and got into a convoy, went to Sharif's house and said, I'm not fired, you are. And so he became the accidental prime minister who literally woke up one morning thinking he was the head of the, the armed forces and went to bed that night thinking he was the head of the yeah, He became the chief executive of the country. He called him, exactly, he called yeah. himself chief executive, yeah. So at that point, what did he want? Well, he wanted to stay in power, but you know, he, he wasn't going to be able to stay in power that yeah. long. Eventually, the Supreme Court gave him three years for a transition, so then he wanted to win an election or a plebiscite or something to extend his time in power. He didn't want to go down in history as the dictator. He wanted to go down in history as the person who solved a corrupt democracy and was loved by his people. So, you know, what expression of that love? Well, win an election. How do you win an election if you've just toppled a democratic government? I mean, this is an interesting question, yeah. no? And his chosen instrumentally incoherent tool was decentralization. This is, this is, the differences are fascinating and slightly more because I'm Pakistani, it just feels so much right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can correct me if I'm no, wrong. No, 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 it is absolutely correct. And it's, uh, it's just very interesting on sort of how Pakistan has sort of done weird stuff, various stuff with these people in the position of power and their mm. personal incentives have been responsible for these mass institutional changes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so Pakistan and Bolivia both decentralized. But in hindsight, and we have almost 19, 20 years uh, after this happened, um, how has decentralization fared and how does this concept explain uh, because you talk about two types of decentralization here, I thought it would be really interesting to slightly talk about, in hindsight, how that has happened. Uh, yeah, the yeah. outcomes of, sorry, of the decentralization. Yeah, 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 quite right. Yeah, so we we talk about um, upward facing. What, what do we call it? I've forgotten. Upward, upward ac upwardly accountable uh, and downwardly downward accountable. That's it. Yeah. Okay, so upward facing incentives versus downward facing incentives, and so it's that generate decentralization which in one case is, is upwardly accountable i.e. to the chief executive or to the no central government. No guessing which country you was there. <laughs> no guessing. And versus a different decentralization where you have uh, accountability downwards to voters and to citizens. Mm. So it turns out the Bolivians have the latter where the decentralized local governments <clears throat> 
excuse me, the municipal government and, and officials are downwardly accountable to voters, and in Pakistan they're upwardly accountable to ministers and the central government apparatus. Um, the result of this is that decentralization dies a quiet death lamented by no one, in, in full view of everyone and lamented by no one, when Musharraf is in, in effect overturned. He's, he's sort of forced out of power, mm. I think, by the Supreme Court yeah. about nine years later. Um, and so his decentralization, they just close the door and turn out the lights and, and those local governments, you know, as soon as those terms end, yeah. they're not renewed, there are no more elections, that's it. And nobody lifts a finger. No, the, the Pakistani people do not go out into the street to demand their, the return of their local governments. In Bolivia, by contrast, uh, Goni Sanchez de Lozada is, is re-elected after one period out of power, he's re-elected back in, in the, the normal proper way constitutionally. And he's, he's overturned in that second period, um, and through a complicated process that leads to the rise of Evo Morales, a, a period of political instability, um, from which Evo Morales emerges not just as president eventually, but as the giant astride the, the Bolivian political scene. He's still there, he's still president. Oh, uh, the B something, what's the party? No, it's the mass. The, the mass, yeah. The movement towards socialism. Yeah, yeah, okay. The mass. Um, and, and so you, we're talking about a, a guy who's winning elections like no one has won elections since the 1953 revolution. I mean, he's just winning massive majorities. Um, and he wins every single election, one after the other, for a long period of time. Plebiscites, other sorts of elections that are called the new constitution, a plebiscite to, to, um, to, 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 to accept it, to validate it, and he wins all of these. And he tries to undo decentralization because, you know, a big, powerful political leader doesn't want to give power mm. and resources away. He wants to centralize power. That's the tendency all over the world. Um, people don't get into politics to give away power, right? Yeah. They get into politics to exercise power. So he tries to undo decentralization kind of quietly through the back door. And this leads to, to massive demonstrations, um, including violence and deaths in the street, where people are, are, are claiming that they want to overthrow the government because they're demanding regional autonomy, because they don't want to let him undo decentralization. They want more decentralization, not just down to the local level, but also to the regional level. So they're, they're demanding to, to maintain what's there and to increase it mm -hmm. through the, this, their, their rallying cries, regional autonomies. Um, and so he does a, a neat 180. He just does an about face and he rebrands the law of popular participation from his major political foe, Goni Sanchez Rosada. He rebrands it as decentralization and autonomy. And he talks about autonomies. And he, he, he grants autonomies down to the local level, a new level of, of autonomies, which is, that is to say, he grants more money and, and more powers so, yeah. to the same local governments. He creates a new level of local governments which are indigenous um, uh, indigenous peasant or indigenous campesino autonomies, which didn't exist before. And he creates new elected regional governments, which Goni had been too afraid to do. Mm. Um, and he calls them regional autonomies. So even more decentralization. So even more decentralization than before. And the reason he's forced to do this is, is the, well, it's, it's because he, he, he there was saying. violence erupting in the street, <laughs> and he was afraid that his government might be toppled, and because the country was really split down the middle. Mm. And so he, he had to overcome, he had helped to generate a really deep divide in Bolivia. You know, a bit like in this country, Brexit versus Remain in the US, right versus left, or Trump versus everyone else. In, in Bolivia, it was Morales versus the rest of the people, which maps onto brown-skinned people versus lighter-skinned people, which also maps onto East versus yeah. West. So it's a really dangerous divide in Bolivia. 
because it could, I mean, people were afraid at the height of these tensions where, where there were demonstrations and the military and the police shooting at demonstrators and killing people, people were afraid that civil war was, was close to breaking out. And there was even evidence that there were certain international scoundrels that were arming, you know, arms from the Balkans were arriving in the east of the country and arming civic militias to go out and fight the military. So it was a really tense period. And at this point, he does the about face. Mm. Um, and, and today, as opposed to Pakistan, where they just, you know, close down decentralization and that's that, in Bolivia, it's baked into the constitution. In fact, the name of Bolivia is now um, the, oh, no, you got me speaking English and I can't remember in Spanish, is the, la, I'm going to have to look it up. This is embarrassing. It's funny. So it's the, 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 the plurinational, the, the plurinational Republic of Bolivia. They named the country. The official name is Bolivia. Everyone says Bolivia. Yeah. But the official name on official documents is the Plurinational Republic well, of Bolivia. Because really And plurinational it. means that there are lots of different subnational elements that are coming together under Bolivia. Mm -hmm. But it is explicitly recognizing these different groups, these different subnational groups, in a way that never happened in Bolivian history. So in Bolivian history, if you go back to, to the 1952-53 revolution, they wanted to generate, they wanted to, to really push the melting pot idea, like in Mexico, and, and get the different ethnic groups to blend by intermarrying and interbreeding. So they literally wanted to create a new race of Bolivian that was neither white nor brown, that was something in between, right? And that didn't work in the way, or certainly not as quickly as they wanted it in the way they yeah. wanted it. I mean, today, there's a majority of Bolivians that still think of themselves and conceive of themselves as indigenous. And so now, they, via decentralization yeah. and via these indigenous and, and campesino peasant autonomies, they, they've actually baked it into the structure of the country and into the legal system. So if, if, you're, if you're indigenous living in particular indigenous regions with indigenous autonomy, you have a different legal system than if you're not indigenous living in the cities. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And this is, so it comes back to the concept uh, of instrumental appearances yeah. that uh, these sort of short-term political goals, you lead to these structural changes. That's right. But the pr the point also worth mentioning is perhaps these structural changes might not be positive, negative. You don't really know about them, and might not uh, persist over a long period of time, depending on how you, what incentives you had when you were designing that structure. So That's right. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So absolutely. the Musharrafs was very was to delegitimize or to create legitimacy for himself and. Perhaps the national political elite was aligned to provincial linguistic groups to break that layer. That's what I think. Okay. Yeah. So that that might be the case, and and that happened. And in Bolivia, it was to answer the sort of to appease protesters or to uh, uh, to uh, to energize the base of the party or whatever it was. So let me, talk, yes. so let, let me talk about yeah. the, the initial decentralization yeah, of both countries. I've confused it just now because exactly, I, I talked about that. the, the second really, decentralization. Yeah. But so let, let's talk about in the 90s when both countries decentralized. So Bolivia, this is the law of popular... Participation, exactly. Yeah. That one, by, by Sanchez Rosada. In 1994 versus Pakistan uh, in 1999. So in the same five-year period. In, let, we'll start with Pakistan, in deference to you. So in <laughs> Pakistan, you've got the accidental dictator who wants to legitimize himself, and he wants to do it partly by delegitimizing the established elite-led political parties. So you, you know better than I do, correct me if I'm wrong. In Pakistan, you've got two big political groupings, one led by Sharif and his clan and allies and group of people, and the other one led by, by Bhutto, uh, the family of, of the late Benazir Bhutto, mm -hmm. and her extended family and allies and, and other At this uh, point, you're in Pakistan, you know everything. 
exactly, this is literally everything. So, and, and these are very, very elite, meaning you have, you have very rich, powerful elites that lead these two groupings, and you know, whichever party wins, the elites are still in power. Um, and Musharraf is not from that socio-demographic group. He's not uh, you know, the, the son of one of the great landowning elites in Pakistan. The son of an immigrant from India. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. How yeah. oh, cool. Okay. Um, and so, as I understand it, he's, he's from a middle-class background, educated, you know, university educated, and that kind of thing, but not the great landowning families. Mm -hmm. um, and so what he wants to do for, for, for functional reasons in terms of how do I extend my time in, in office, and also probably for deeper reasons about identity, is he, he wants to build um, a, a movement that supports him and will vote for him in the next election, which he's going to call it, but he's going to call it when he's good and ready. Um, and he wants to delegitimize the political parties. And so he decentralizes in a way that explicitly excludes the political parties, meaning poli established political parties cannot compete for local office in Pakistan. They call it non-partisan elections. Non-partisan elections, exactly. But really they're anti-partisan or they're anti-those party elections, yeah. right? Um, yeah, he, he tries to sort of sell it as you know, something above politics, but really yeah. it's against politics. Um, unless you're allied with him, in which case, no problem. And if you were a member of one of those parties and you change your alliance and declare well, your loyalty, yeah, 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 yeah. Then, then you can do it. In Bolivia, by contrast, there, there was a multi-party group of people that included prominent members of the opposition, thoughtful members of the opposition, to plan it behind closed doors. And then they announce it and they debate it in, in Congress. Um, and some people vote against it, but there, there's a coalition that goes beyond the, the ruling parties that includes some of the opposition parties that vote in favor and it gets a majority and it passes. And the idea was very much to kind of turbocharge democracy in a way that incentivized all the political parties to compete and to compete fiercely in local elections too, so that those local governments are responsive to local voters. But why? Why was the case? So why? Yeah. So exactly. Yeah, quite right. So the, the problem that Goni Sanchez Lozada was facing is that he, his was the party of the revolution which had won election after election after election in the 50s, 60s, 70s. By the 1980s, the party is in, in gradual but, but continuous, unabated decline, um, where they can no longer win an election. And in fact, by the 1990s, they're finding it very difficult to govern, even in coalitions with a number of other parties. Mm -hmm. So their, their core support has gone from as high as 98% in one election. So they went from dominant party to... A totally dominant to, yeah. to around 30%. And they couldn't break out of that 30%. Um, Additionally, you've got very powerful elites in the east of the country, especially around the city of Santa Cruz and to a lesser extent Tarija, um, blocking his ability to govern, blocking legislation in, in Congress um, to try to force him to give more money and more concessions to Santa Cruz and to Tarija. So you have these, and they're demanding decentralization, but they want decentralization to the cities, to, to the region. They don't want decentralization down to, to okay, the that makes city sense. level. Yeah. Okay. So they, they wanted to, to the regions. So he, he devises, he hits on this idea of decentralization as, as a single arrow that's going to kill two beasts at once. It's going to be like a, like a second land reform. So the reason that they were so dominant in the 50s, 60s, 70s is that they did the land reform in 1952-53, which literally broke up the, the big latifundias, the, the, the big farms, and gave the land to the peasants. You know? And so they got the undying gratitude of two generations, of, mm. of that generation of people who received the land and their children. But by the time of the grandchildren, which it is now in the 1990s, the grandchildren have kind of forgotten. They, they take it for granted. You know, they, they, they forget about the revolution. So it's like a second policy shock that he thinks is going to get the undying loyalty of another 50 years worth of especially rural voters 
because you're going to create, it's important to know about Bolivia that you only had municipal governance in about nine places in the city, right? There were another 20 or so that existed in name, but not in function, there were no budgets, no people. The no form buildings. was a function. Yeah, the, the other, so today Bolivia has something like 330 municipalities. And so there were 300 of those that did not exist in any sense, not legally, not uh, functionally, not administratively, not financially, in, in no sense. So most of Bolivia was just un, excuse me, unorganized territory. There was literally no local government that was running schools or hospitals or anything that you could go and complain to mm. if your streets needed repaving or the river had swamped your house or something like that. No? So he's going to create local governments all through especially rural Bolivia and he thinks these people are going to vote for my party because okay. they're going to remember that we did this. So that's his incentive. And so that's that's his incentive and, and his party's incentive. So his party is a really centralizing, you know, we love exercising power. We're the natural party of power in Bolivia. So this was not the obvious party to decentralize power. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the first conundrum is why do they do it? And so that's why they did it. They thought, okay, we're going to give some power and money away to these municipalities but we're better organized than the other parties, so we'll probably win a lot of these municipal elections. And anyway, we're going to win national elections for 50 years because it's going to be like land reform. And secondly, we're going to draw, we're going to pull the carpet out from under these eastern elites who want decentralization to the regions. We're going to go beneath them to the local governments, and they're not going to be able to dominate. There is some alignment of uh, incentives in Pakistan's case. There's there's some perils there too, right? So, uh, like what? How, yeah, how do you mean? Well, not elites, but the political elite, at least in Pakistan's case, the two oh, the parties. Opponents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that yeah. yeah, to undermine your opponents, right? So they did right. it through different means. One was, of course, elected and might have more procedural legitimacy in the way they were doing it. The other one did not. Yeah. And that might explain the divergent parts. Yeah, no, that's a good yeah. point. That's a good but point. Th there is some sort of... A, uh, that's a good point. But it, and it underlines why, nonetheless, it, it leads to two very different designs. So you're trying to undermine political elites in Pakistan. So you design an anti-democratic decentralization mm -hmm. where political parties that have been established in that tradition cannot compete. And in Bolivia, they're trying to draw in the, the political elites and political parties and they want to undermine the business elites in the region. Okay, kind of so, okay. so they design it in a way that explicitly incentivizes the political parties to start organizing themselves all through rural Bolivia, which they've always ignored, right? Mm -hmm. And to, to set up local chapters and throw up candidates and you know compete for local elections. And it works. In Bolivia, it really works. People go out and vote and they compete fiercely and the parties are at each other's throats all over the place. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a really horrible example, but but Bolivians take the idea of local government being theirs and being accountable to them really seriously. And in the Altiplano, it sort of gets, it, it morphs with, you know, ideas of traditional justice, which is often very harsh justice. And so there, there are a few remote villages in Bolivia where the mayor was stealing the money and it was discovered by local people, not, not by the police or by the president, by local people in his village that the mayor was stealing the money and this is why they hadn't built the school he had promised or they hadn't fixed the, the hospital. And so they grabbed that mayor and pulled him out of his house in the middle of the night and they burned him alive. They said, you, we elected oh you, you made a promise, this is the justice that we meet out in our community from the very strong signaling to other mayors. Yeah. <laughs> not, I'm so, not, I'm not, uh, it, but no, 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 uh, I mean neither, absolutely. It's, it's, it's so what, my, my point is that people really believe this government was theirs and it had to respond to them. And, and they had a right for their locally elected governments that they had elected and at the end of these long, because they, 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 they rolled out a big participative planning 
process all over the country and in every town and village they, they planned their needs and they came up with a schedule of things that these local governments were going to do and so when the mayor stole the money instead you know they mm. they took the justice that they, so truly downward they accountability. Yeah, uh, that kind of thing didn't happen in Pakistan. In Pakistan, really? people don't go out to vote. People don't don't understand how it works. Well, the so local governments were very complicated, and you would talk about this. Yeah, this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the Bolivians yeah. designed that's another important point. The Bolivians designed a, a very simple administrative system and a very simple um, accountability system where it's clear to voters how government works, what it's meant to do, and how they can hold it accountable. Um, mm -hmm. In Pakistan you have this really convoluted design where one level of I can't understand it by the way. <laughs> I, so you know, we tried, Mavish came up with some brilliant graphics trying to yeah, design it, but it's so, it's so complicated. Yeah. One level of, of officials are elected by the people, but then they have a second tier election yeah, to indirectly elect somebody yeah. else um, who is meant to report to a third person who's nominated by the center, but the third person doesn't actually have power over the second person because her financing is separate. So nobody understood how it worked. And so for your, you know, your, your typical Pakistani citizen trying to get local government mm. to do something, everybody is passing the buck to everyone else. And, and so you know, they just lost interest very quickly. Yeah. Uh, what is interesting, and I'm going I'm to move away from decentralization now, but Pakistan did decentralize not to local level, but to provincial level in 2009 under a democratic government mm. with bipartisan support of the two main Bhutto and Sharif's party. Mm. And that has contributed That's a, uh, through a constitutional amendment. Oh, is it really? Okay. It is an incredibly powerful way to decentralize power and even a decentralized majority of the finances to provinces mm. uh, and control over most things like education, healthcare, and local governance. Right, right. So, uh, so they did eventually end up decentralizing, but to a, to a higher tier. And under a different set of incentives, perhaps, and that incentives one can speculate was be perhaps because the, the government was led by the Bhutto's party, right. whose power they control is in the second largest province, and the largest province has majority of the seats in the parliament. They had gotten the power at that time, but they might have thought that they wouldn't get it again and again. Yeah. So they could still control one province, and they still do. So they lost two national elections after that, but they still control that province, the second largest in the country. So they still have uh, power despite losing everywhere else in the country. Yeah. And that, that's a very interesting, uh, that, that's something which sort of just thinking about it sort of fits into the concept too. That right. Like a, well, this, in this case, they had like a long-term political goal and they were able to make the structural change. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. excellent discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate you coming over and, and your interest in this topic. I'm just so delighted. It's quite fascinating. It's the, it's the kind of large-scale questions I'm really interested in. Good. But it's a, Okay, great. Thank you very much. I will put a link to your paper. It's still ungated. It's still ungated. It's yeah. The, the working paper is available. Okay. Forever. I will put the I will put the link to it, and anyone who wants to read it can. And thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you.